Kia ora, I'm Laura Clark, the British High Commissioner to New Zealand. Welcome to another episode of Tea with the High Commission, the British High Commission's podcast, where we interview a range of interesting people talking about anything and everything, and in the process discover the great connections between the UK and New Zealand. Kia ora koutou, and welcome to a special Save the Children episode of Tea with the High Commission. I'm Toby Fisher, husband of British High Commissioner Laura Clark. I also have the privilege of being the patron of Wellington Save the Children. My guest today is Anne Chamberlain, New Zealand writer, actress, dramaturg. Anne was born in Canterbury, New Zealand and studied at Otago University. She's since built a credit list as long as my arm. But she's with me today in her capacity as the writer, performer and producer of Eglantine, a brilliant one-woman show about pioneering English human rights activist Eglantine Jeb founder of Save the Children. Anne has toured Eglantine throughout the UK, through Australia, to the home of Save the Children in Geneva, to Beirut, Dar es Salaam, and has just completed a sold-out return season in Wellington, New Zealand. Anne is a former actor, former human rights lawyer, husband of a strong, determined woman, and patron of Wellington Save the Children. It's an absolute pleasure to have you to tea. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Now, Anne, I was lucky enough to see your show last week, and uh, aside from the masterful writing and acting, thought the story of Eglantine Jeb was remarkable. Uh, so can you start by telling us a bit about Eglantine? Eglantine, born in 1876 in Shropshire. She's from this traditional and well-educated upper-middle-class family. It was a brilliant family in many ways because her parents, even though they're from these priv- the privileged classes, had an incredibly strong social conscience so brought up these children with a, a strong awareness of other people's circumstances. So I'm just throwing that in at the beginning because I think it's important to where Eglantine went later in her life. Yeah. Another important aspect of that, they had tremendous freedom as children. There were six children. Dorothy, the sister closest to her, was a close friend, and they had an extremely close relationship all their life. And in fact, it was the two sisters who founded Save the Children in May of 1919. They were educated in a schoolroom, which was the case in in those days for people who could afford to have a teacher at home. But also Eglantine studied at Oxford University. She was a very bright, intelligent, inquisitive person with, again, the strong social conscience. This was at a time when not many women were going to places like Oxford. Absolutely. There was Cambridge and Oxford where women were allowed to attend, but they weren't even allowed their degrees conferred at the time. Uh, So there were many, many inequalities happening. Also, at the time, women didn't have the vote in the the UK. We all know New Zealand where where women first got the vote. It was a really pivotal time of social change. We're talking pre and post First World War. So she's at university before the First World War. She does her first lot of social work, actually with a woman called Florence Keynes. I'm sure you've heard of uh, John Maynard Keynes, her very famous son, who was an economist and and an amazing thinker. She she did work with um, Florence Keynes and that opened her eyes to what was going on and in, with, with poverty, people who couldn't work, and it was just a, a really eye-opening time for her. And, of course, there was no social welfare either in Britain at the time. Meeting the Keynes has also introduced her to Margaret. 
It did. So there are three children. There's John Maynard Keynes. There's brother Geoffrey Keynes, who marries Margaret Darwin. All these families are terribly linked, and and they don't move much. And then, yes, there's the sister, Margaret Keynes. Tell us a little bit about that, because what I, what I enjoyed about your play was that you tell the story of Eglantine Jeb, the social reformer, the social campaigner, but also the story of Eglantine Jeb, the person, the, the lover, the broken-hearted, and one of the parts of that story is her relationship with Margaret. Exactly. When I was approaching this as, as, the, as the, the writer, I, I felt it was really important that it wasn't just one big lecture about how fabulous Eglantine was co-founding Save the Children and going on to draft the rights of the child, but she, but she was a human being. It had to work for me, head and heart, which I think all good theatre does that. So that was really important to me. It was also my way into Eglantine, both as, as a writer and a performer, to really get under the skin. It's like, what makes us tick? We're all human beings with our frailties, our dreams, our hopes, our disappointments. These things shape us. So in many ways, the play's about what shapes a life. And Margaret was one of the great joys in Eglantine's life, but it, it was a relationship that ended, sad, sadly, for Eglantine. And it was a big heartbreak and disappointment. And these things change everybody. We, we absorb things and respond to them in different ways. And that's one of the aspects of the play. So I'm, I'm glad that you, you like that. And I've, when I chat, chat to audiences afterwards, they're very moved by the personal story and then her response to it that she can eventually pick herself up and carry on. Sorry, I interrupted you. You were, you were telling the story of Eglantine. She was... Uh, had met John Maynard Keynes and the Keynes family in Cambridge. One of the pivotal things that happened, actually this was after the, the breakup with, with Margaret, which was in 1913, so we're heading towards the war. No one's quite seeing the war happening. Eglantine's sister Dorothy, who I mentioned earlier, who, who co-founded Save the Children with her, had married this brilliant man called Charlie Buxton, who also had this enormous social conscience. And he and his brother... Kept, were keeping an eye on the Balkans and seeing there was a lot of starvation there and they set up this thing called organisation called the Macedonian Relief Fund and they knew that Eglantine was kind of heartbroken and sitting around and not doing much but also knew her capacity and that she was intelligent and able. said, so would you mind going over there? Of course she grabbed that opportunity, goes off to the Balkans to help distribute food to people who are in desperate, desperate situations. This was another hugely eye-opening experience for her. Poverty in Cambridge is another thing in the Balkans when you've just got thousands of people starving and so on. So that was a change point for her as well. She goes back to England, tries to drum up some interest and, and then it's also quite prescient in a way because it is in the in the Balkans where this you know, where the First World War is ignited. So the First World War starts in 1914. Save the Children is established in 1919. How does that happen? Okay, so the well, we, we, we're all very aware of the war dates, 14 to 18. A lot of women during that time, which we don't hear so much about, were very strong pacifists and were trying to get that voice heard. It wasn't heard much during, during that time. The war ends November 1918, but what happens is Britain and the Allies keep up an economic blockade on Europe. Now, I didn't know any of this until I started reading about Eglantine and researching, so I felt a bit ignorant that I hadn't realised. So this blockade was kept up. 
So food was not actually passing through or getting into Europe, even though the war has ended. It was particularly not getting to Germany, Austria, or the, the Eastern Bloc. And so Eglantine and Sister Dorothy and others were lobbying the British government to lift this blockade to at least free it up. You know, the war's over now. Let's stop being mean and try and get a healthy Europe. She starts leafleting, realising that lobbying the government's getting nowhere. They think well, they need public support. If they can just let the British government, a British public, know what's happening here. So she's leafleting in Trafalgar Square in the April of 1919, saying, look, there's a famine in Europe. We've got to, know, we've got to send food there. What's gets arrested, which actually ends up being quite good because it gets massive publicity. Well, all the greats get arrested, don't they? Exactly. Well, I haven't been arrested yet, <laughs> No, neither have I. <laughs> but, yes, so as it turned out, it wasn't such a bad thing because it did put the spotlight on the situation. The sisters and others who were working with them realised what they needed was to have really let the public know. So they hold this big meeting in the Royal Albert Hall, and again, now we need to, I'm just linking back to the circumstances she grew up in, the fact that she's ed educated at Oxford. What was very, very helpful was that Eglantine and Dorothy were moving in circles where you could actually make a booking. Sure, they have to pay it, but, you know, the, it helped. It was, a, it was a very bold move to do that, but they went out big with publicity on the back of the arrest and so on. And amongst others, Eglantine and Dorothy deliver speeches and really paint the picture of the horridness that's happening in Europe. Do you realise this is still happening? The war's over, but... And then there's this amazing spontaneous collection to give money so that food could be starting to get through to... So they thought, forget this lifting the blockade, let's just... And let's just go for it directly. And then I think their first inspired campaign was to walk Swiss dairy cows to Austria, because there was there, there was milk in Switzerland, and, you know, like, oh, we've got, I don't even have to ship it across the channel, we'll just walk it across. You know, so they're literally walking these cows across to Austria. And so they had quite inventive and interesting ways of thinking, what is the best way to do, you know, to do this? And that was the birth of Save the Children. Exactly. That spontaneous collection at the Albert Hall was the birth of Save the Children. It was set up really in response to that devastating famine after the First World War. But as life progressed and then there was a Russian famine, they were thinking of winding up, save the children, but there was this terrible famine in Russia, 1921. And so they think, oh gosh, we better help out with that as well. And then in the process of doing that, many countries and many aid agencies helped. Eglantine starts to see there is a lot of need, unfortunately, in the wider world and can see the possibility of turning save the children from what was a domestic U UK organisation into an international organisation. So she heads off to Geneva, befriends the Red Cross because she thinks, I need someone to help me. How do you set up a huge organisation like that? She was very, she knew where she needed help and she would go and she was incredibly persuasive. Amazing. So I want to move on to, to talk a little bit about you, Anne, but um, Eglantine's work continued from establishing Save the Children to... Uh, to have some really significant impacts. I'm thinking of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Children, which then was the precursor to the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. That's right. Part of going to Geneva, she realised that that's where it was all happening in the international world because the League of Nations had been set up in Geneva after the First World War to try and... We don't want this ever to happen again. Unfortunately, it did, but that was the intention then with League of Nations. Red Cross had, had been there since 1863, so it was kind of becoming this hub. So she goes there for that, but while she is there, 
thinking, okay, it's, we respond to emergencies as emergency, we'll feed people. She starts to, to realise that there are no rights for children, that children are very vulnerable and easily exploited. And particularly, she would have seen you know, children up chimneys, sweeping streets, you know, all over the world, there were no rights embedded for children. So she was the one who thought, actually, there needs to be something. There needs to be something in our legal system. So it's in Geneva that she drafts what was called the Rights of the Child. It was the Declaration of the Rights of the Child then, and it was adopted by, by the League of Nations. And then after Second World War, the League of Nations turns into UN, so the UN kind of takes it under its belt. And it's not until 1989 that what Eglantine originally drafted evolves into what our current UN convention on the rights of the child. So it's a massive legacy. Yeah, which is now the most, um, uh, most well-subscribed convention that we have Exactly. What I loved about your play was the way you didn't just tell the story of Eglantine, but you also told your, told your own story. I think for those who have seen the play, they'll understand this, but it might be difficult to grasp through a podcast. But you uh, flit between your cut-glass English accent as Eglantine to your dulcet Kiwi tones as yourself. And you tell your life alongside hers. It's quite an exposing piece in that way. And I wonder what about your life drew you to Eglantine's story? Okay, well, I'm, I'm glad you liked it. It was my original intention to do that. But then in my, as I started writing the piece, I got very tired of me. And so, in fact, the very first draft of this, has, I've taken myself right out of it and kept it in her world. But the director, who I'd already asked to direct it, when I, when I presented him with the first script, he said, whatever happened to you? I went, oh, no, I got sick of me. He said, look, bring it back. What did you write? Okay, so to answer your question, when I first discovered Eglantine, I was actually going for an interview for a short-term communications contract for Save the Children here in Wellington. I mean, as you will know, when you work in the artistic world and as an actor you often don't have the continuity of um, employment so I have done behind the scenes work <laughs> and, um, anyway so I was googling as one does before an interview and which is when I first read about Eglantine and Dorothy and I thought I don't know about these women this is strange anyway I went on to get this short-term contract which meant to last three months lasted nine months that's fine but as I went and did the job, I started reading about her. There's been about three different biographies. There was a recent one written in 2009. It's a very good one written by Claire Mully called The Woman Who Saved the Children. Uh, so I was, read I was reading that. And I'd also known, I'd felt in my bones it was time for me to write and produce another show of my own. I mean, it's fantastic being other other people's shows. I love that. But I also could feel there was something brewing, but I didn't know what it was. And then it was almost a eureka moment reading the biography, and it was particularly in the childhood part. So Eglantine grows up in this lovely, lovely, lovely farm in Shropshire, and I grew up on a farm in, in Canterbury, and I adored growing up on the farm, and like the, the freedom, and, the, and, you do, and you do think everything's possible. And there was something that I particularly connected with with the childhood. Then I thought, oh, I see this. I I haven't gone on to do the things that Eglantine has done, and this, you know, all the amazing things that she's done. But I could absolutely connect with the ebb and flow of her life. You know, she falls in love with Marcus as her first great love, and it doesn't work out. And and I remember that. You know, I was there. I was at Otago University with my medical student. Of course, I thought I was going to be married. I was going to have children. And then that ends, and I, the devastation of that. 
I remember very keenly and felt very keenly that, and I knew that I had the sense that Eglantine was the same, and and I think it's the same for many people. This, so it's more to do, I, and you'll know because you've seen the play. There's a there's, it's slightly unbalanced in a structure way. There's more about me early on, and then I kind of the Anne character fades out, and I kind of almost pass the baton. And Egl, as Eglantine's really takes off, I sort of pull right back. And I've had some people say to me, "Oh, we want more of you." I said, "No, no, 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 no. It's her story <laughs> from now on." But I think what I think. The power of it and why it's a, it lets the audience know perhaps, but they don't need to know why I was interested, but I think the most important thing about it, by giving it the contemporary frame, whether I'd grown up in Canterbury or France or Russia or wherever, I think the contemporary frame helps because it draws a historic person from 100 years ago right into the, right into the here and now. And I've particularly had that, I love it when younger people come, they particularly like that contemporary frame I think they can then think oh well she has all these disappointments and that happened to her as well or maybe and so I think it makes her more real somehow. Yeah, I think it's incredibly effective I really really enjoyed the way you did that. You mentioned when you were um, just answering that question uh, the, the parallels between your life growing up on a farm and Eglantine's life growing up on a farm in Shropshire and I understand you performed the play at Eglantine's farm in Shropshire. Yes. How did that go? Amazing. So when I first wrote the play, which was in 2014, I had two places I wanted to perform it, the house where she grew up and Geneva. She, she, she died in Geneva and is buried there, so kind of the beginning and end, I suppose. But I didn't even know how it was going to go. We toured it originally here in, in New Zealand, and the director, Casey Kelly, came with me, and we started in the South Island, Geraldine, Timaru, Ashburton, Christchurch, Wellington, did New Plymouth. Anyway, I thought, okay, this show is working. It's worth taken to the UK. So I then just went across soon after that. I'd done some original research in the house the year before, which was the very first place. I, I knew I had to go there first. And her original papers had been held in the house, but luckily for me, because there's still family members living in the house, they had been sent to London, to the Women's Library, and were housed in the London School of Economics, which was great, because then you're in a reading room, you're not shuffling about someone's house, opening up boxes. So at least I had access to these personal papers, which are letters, diaries, amazing, none of it digital, so it's like panning for gold, you know, and you're reading, like, you know, the Margaret letters, the, the diary entries, this sort of thing. When I went, I had that first visit was one hour, and I looked, and I saw this amazing room, and I thought, oh, my gosh, it would be good to perform here. And I'd met Lionel... Eglantine's great nephew and his wife Corinna who showed me around that day and I told them my intention and they were very nice and saying oh you're going to do this so then when I went back and said it did happen you know what next year I'd love to perform the show in the UK and I've got this idea of doing a preview here in the house friends and family no tickets just da 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 and they agreed they thought it was a great idea and also I then structured there were various regional theatres I was going to do so so then it comes to 2015 come to the house me thinking this is a fabulous idea, and I was so nervous for that show. Not that I needed the family's permission legally, but I wanted their blessing. Of course. And how did they find this play told by a Kiwi woman about Eglantine from the 1910s, 1920s, 1930s? Well, thankfully, they loved it. And I, I take my hat off to them because they were not in any way snobby towards me when they first met me. It's like, oh, all right, you've, okay, so that's what you're, you're intending to do. And then when they saw it, 
This also makes me feel good about the piece because it must be plausible enough because I'm right in the heartland by performing it to the, the, the extended family and people of the area and so on. No, they, they loved it. And they also like the, the New Zealand bit, the contemporary frame thing. Yes, I, I feel that there's something in there because Eglantine was such an international character and an incredibly modern global thinker I mean, when you look at the situation we've got now with people wanting to build walls and it's getting, and we're going to this very nationalist phase, and sadly it seems, I'm talking internationally here, to have someone like Eglantine back then thinking of no borders, really, and that we're all part of humanity. You know, no matter what country you're from, it's about how we respond to mankind and our responsibility to that. So and they didn't seem to have... still is reflected in Save the Children's. Exactly. And they also said to me in 2015, when I did the show, please come back in 2019, because this year, 2019, is the centenary of the founding of Save the Children. Uh, now, a theme of this podcast is the links between the UK and New Zealand. Now, both you and I are, are living links of sorts. Uh, you've lived in the UK for quite a long time, I think. Yes, I've a lot of my adult life's been in the UK. Um, as as has mine. Um, and when you're back here, are there things about the UK you miss? Yes, I'm split. From the first time I went to the UK, I, I mean, I was born here, studied here. My grandparents on my mother's side are Scottish, so I, that's how I could get the UK grandparents thing. That's how I could live in the UK for so long. Plus the fact that I adore theatre and history. I remember the first time I, in my 20s going to London getting off at Heathrow, you know, getting the tube and get... I thought, and I did have a sense of arriving home. Mm. And I've always felt that. And possibly even more so in, in Scotland, but I think it's to do with the, the richness of... Well, I think it's in our bones, you know? Yeah. And I, I, I... But I feel at home in both places. And I've ended up resolving what's here isn't there and what's there isn't here. Well, I, I, I feel the same way, but I feel... I. I lived my first 20 years here in New Zealand, my second 20 years in the UK, and I'm now back in New Zealand. And it's, it's, it's an odd feeling, isn't it? Because I always feel that when I, wherever I am, I miss the other place, but I always feel at home. Um, and it's a nice place to be. The one thing, the things that I miss about the UK when I'm in New Zealand is English pubs. I love English pubs. Also the, the, the smell of cut grass on a summer's day in England. Um, those are the things I miss. I don't miss drinking tea, despite the, the, the title of this, uh, this podcast. Um, right. you, are you a tea drinker? I am. I drink tea and coffee, so you can go either way on that one. Yeah, but, but it's, so you're, you're, you, haven't, you haven't become um, sucked into the English tea drinking culture? Well, I grew up drinking tea, oh, so right. even, and I've always loved tea, actually. Like, I'd have a cup of tea when I was five. So. Proper tea, herbal tea? Not herbal, no, no, normal old gumboot tea. Do you know why Marxists only drink herbal tea? No. Property is theft. Ah. <laughs> Sorry, on, on that note, that's, pro that's probably a sign that this, our time's come to an end um, when I'm making jokes like that. Thank you very much, Anne Chamberlain, for sharing your story. Uh, your, not only your story, but Eglantine Jeb's story and Save the Children's story with us. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Finally, an invitation to our Wellington listeners to join us for the Save the Children Christmas Fair at the High Commissioner's Residence in Homewood on Saturday the 30th of November. We'd love to see you then. Kakitiano. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review as it helps others find us. And remember you can subscribe to us by searching for Tea with the High Commission 
on iTunes or Spotify. Thank you. Kakiti anō.